Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Hey guys, so I don't know if you remember, but when I interviewed Sarah Jessica Parker, she kept coming back to this idea of somebody interviewing me and my sharing that as an episode on my podcast. And I wasn't really sure what that would look like or whether or not that was even appropriate. But then my beloved friend, Roy O'Malley, who I truly believe is one of the most gifted performers living on the planet, you know him from playing King George and Hamilton on Broadway and his Tony-nominated turn in the Book of Mormon and many other things. He also has a podcast called Living the Dream, which is truly one of my favorite podcasts. And when he asked me to be a guest on his show, I thought maybe this is an opportunity to do what Sarah had been asking me to do. And so I'm sharing my conversation with Rory on his podcast, Living the Dream, on my podcast platforms. Uh, so I hope you will fall as deeply in love with Rory as I have during this conversation. There's also an interview I did with him uh, a few episodes back, and you can get to know him more in great detail because he is just one of the most uniquely gifted, singular talents that I've ever come across. And most recently, he was also the visionary behind uh, Belt the Vote. And if you go to beltthevote.org, you'll find out more about how he is using the Broadway community, not just as a voice for healing, but as a way to get people to register to vote. And it's really an extraordinary idea. And they have registered thousands and thousands of people to vote that way. And so that is yet another reason why I am in awe of the great talent and human that is Rory O'Malley. So if you haven't been listening to Living the Dream, his podcast, you should be. And in the meantime, here is my conversation with Rory O'Malley, friend, humanitarian, activist, and all-around tremendous human. Enjoy. Okay. Hi, Rory. How are you? I'm so happy. I'm so happy to be talking to you because you are truly one of my favorite, most um, inspirational people that I know. So the idea that I have actually concentrated time just with you right now is heaven. This is right back at you. Little known fact. I'm obsessed <laughs> with your podcast. And, and honestly... The fact that we're, uh, we were just joking before we started that, you know, we're going to talk about podcasting and why we do it for most of the time. But I am so excited to get to talk with you about why you have these conversations with, with actors and people in our business, because I keep 
asking myself, why do I do this? Why do right. I, why, right. I get know, it. It's a lot of work and it's bringing so much joy, but it's just such a funny thing that I never thought I would be doing and continue to do. And listening to your podcast has kept me going. I wasn't sure, and I have to be honest, you know, when there are other podcast podcasters like you and and Patrick Hines and, you know, there were the ensemblists and other yeah. places that were having these conversations. And I thought, well, they're doing it so much better than I could ever do. So maybe I shouldn't do it. You know, like maybe there's just not room for me. But listening to you all and especially to you and to the conversations you've had has only inspired me to continue. So I just want to thank you before we start off for inspiring me to continue to have these conversations and being such a wonderful person and having me on your show and uh, just being a wonderful, wonderful gal. All right. Well, first of all, I'm so glad this is audio because I really wondered what it would look like to be blushing. Like, you know how people always <laughs> Hey, I'm blushing, but I really am. Like, I mean, we could, I don't want to bore our listeners with just a mutual admiration society for the entire duration of this conversation. But <laughs> all I will say is I feel exactly the same way about you. And I think the thing that we're all learning is that there's so much room at the table for everyone. And everything you're saying is exactly how I feel in everything I take on, like, why should I be an actress? There's a million people who can do this part. So much so that I will often sit in auditions telling the casting director about the people I know that should be doing oh, the part I just, yeah. <laughs> I just yeah. read for. But it's because I think part of my desire to do my podcast, and I, and I would imagine you feel the same way, is I am so proud of the people I know who have accomplished so much in their careers. And I feel so honored to share them. I feel like a proud mom right. of all my guests. And uh, unlike with your own children, where it's just obnoxious to go on and on about how <laughs> special they are, yeah. um, it is just truly an honor to get to share these people that I've known for so long who have done such extraordinary work and to try in some way to demystify the process or why they're doing it on such a grand level when someone else isn't yet and to kind of lay out the possibility that it can happen for everyone if you just keep working really hard and are ready when the opportunity comes your way. And that's right. what the through line is of all these conversations is yeah. um, why, why did it happen the way it happened and how were you prepared for it when it did in some way? Yeah. And also, what's the version of it that will make you most happy? And yeah. how did it change from what you dreamt of when you were a kid or when you were younger? It's not exactly what you think it's going to look like. Yeah. And I mean, you know, when I first started out there, I mean, YouTube didn't exist. So my access to sort of behind the scenes of the world that I aspire to be a right. part of were so limited. There was, I mean, and there is James Lipton who does Inside the Actors Studio, which was really, and Theater Talk was a kind of, if you lived in New York, it was um, a cable show interviewing uh, theater personalities. But there was just really very little access to the people I admired in any real way, as opposed to the prepackaged late night talk show circuit sort right. of way, where they were publicizing a specific project. 
that they were doing, you know, a, a media tour of. So anyway. I mean, I was my only access was the Rosie O'Donnell show and uh, uh, yeah. the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And, you know, certainly nothing of, of plays on Broadway. So it was very, right. very limited. But clearly, we enjoy podcasting and it has given us this outlet and this way to communicate with our fellow artists and celebrate them. I, I totally agree. And anytime that I'm like editing an episode at two in the morning and I'm pulling my hair out, like, why am I doing this? I remember all of the people who've talked to me and, and emailed me and said how much it means to them to hear these conversations. I mean, yeah. I'm sure you've, you've felt the same way from, from your listeners. Well, you, you email me. (laughs) (laughs) You've emailed me quite a bit to say that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, that is anytime you take on any endeavor that is not helping pay the rent, in fact, takes away from your ability to pay the rent. Yeah. It has to be because it's a kind of storytelling that you're really obsessed with or engaged with. And I will say, all kidding aside, which has been what has been happening for, the last hour of our conversation, I feel the number of people uh, that have come into my life because of this podcast, uh, it it is so unexpected, the joy and the riches that um, I truly feel have come to me from the people I've met by sharing this podcast with others from all over the world. It is such a remarkable thing. And um, it is no small thing to know that there are people in countries who are not even allowed to listen to music that isn't religious music that Mm -hmm. would be in tremendous trouble if anyone knew they were listening to Broadway cast recordings. And the idea that somewhere in secret uh, people are listening to our content and um, feeling connected and the joy of being a part of a community they wish they could be a part of and hopefully someday they will be, it is truly mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Yeah. Well, let's get let's start uh, at the beginning for you when you were dreaming of being a part of this community. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey. Wow. How, what was that like? Well, I would say <laughs> I would say that um, the lucky thing about growing up in Teaneck, New Jersey, is its access to Manhattan. Yeah. Um, it was right across the George Washington Bridge. So wow. when most of my friends were, you know, hanging out at the local suburban mall, I was taking the bus across the George Washington Bridge and making my way to Times Square and finding the TDF booth and buying theater tickets. It was never something, to be honest, that I imagined I would be a part of as a performer. I wasn't a performer as a kid. It was just something that was part of the fabric of my family's life. It was the way we celebrated anyone's accomplishment. And it was the way I made myself feel better when I was feeling down about anything. I would make my way to uh, a Broadway theater. And at the time I was sitting way up in the balcony and I just loved it. And it wasn't until much later in my life that I found my way, you know, to the other side of the theater and going in, you know, a stage door and coming up on the stage. Um, but it really was a place that I could get lost in stories and I don't know, just feel like I was well, in the company of people who loved what I loved. Right. 
it was it was it's interesting to me because I think for so many actors they immediately see themselves on the stage as kids. You know, like to me it was like I've got to enter I've got to be uh in Les Mis. I can't just right. sit here. I've got to jump up on that stage in in, yes. in fourth grade or whatever grade I was in third grade I think. And so when was it that you felt compelled to to join the people on stage. When did you do walk So the stage I will door? say, I will say it's very interesting. I think they felt like gods to me. So the idea that I would ever walk among them would never have occurred to me. Wow. I, I, it just, what they did and their ability to kind of portray and inhabit these characters that weren't, you know, right. themselves, their everyday self. I just, it, it really was such a mysterious other thing. Um, that the idea that it was something I could do literally would have never occurred to me. So when I, uh, when I finished high school, I was young. I was only 16. And so my parents really thought a gap year would be a great thing before I went off to college so that I could kind of catch up in age and maturity to the people I would be in college with. Right. And so I did a year abroad. And when I came back, my intention was go was to go to college in Connecticut, actually, and to study business. That's what I thought. I thought advertising seemed really cool, and I wanted to go into advertising. I came back from my year abroad. I was getting a haircut. When you asked me about Teaneck, there was a really great salon and a great guy who did hair named Bruno Rondinelli, who was very much like the Warren Beatty character in Shampoo, like oh, he was wow. this sexiest, most beautiful stylist. Wow. And he uh, he had at his station, as they call it in Salon World, a play, a Samuel French play. And I'd never seen one. I didn't know what a, you know, a, right. a working copy of a script looked like. I had yeah. just seen collections of scripts in school, um, the collected works of Arthur Miller. Anyway, I guess I was flirting with him because he was so beautiful. And I picked up the play, started reading from it out loud. He was like, you're really good. And I was like, thank you. He's like, I am going to an acting class tonight in New York City. And it happens to be the one night a month where people can audit for free. Would you like to come? And I was like, yes, yes, I would. Oh and so that God. night I went to New York City with Bruno. With Bruno, Ron your hairstylist. <laughs> yes. Just literally oh. like I probably changed outfits, you know, 52 times. Yeah. Um, went with him to the Terry Schreiber Studios, which is still to this day a really incredible acting studio yeah, in, yeah. in the city. And um, I walked into a class where a teacher named Gloria Maddox was teaching. And I was, I converted that night. My religion was acting. That's what happened. I was in a class where... People were doing a sense memory exercise where they had to recall something from their past. And very slowly, they were guided through an exercise by this teacher where they would just start, you know, at, at A and ended up at Z, which was the event itself. And I just had never seen anything so miraculous or beautiful in my life. Not only the work that people were doing, some were great at it and some were less great at it or had less access to their emotions or their memories, but the support that everyone was lending each other and the generosity with which they talked about the work after they saw it, 
And all, it was just literally a whole new language. It was like I had suddenly, you know, entered a French class, having never heard the language before. Right. And I had no idea at that moment that I was going to become an actor, but I knew that I wanted to keep coming to this class. And Bruno um, stopped going to that class, and he has since opened up his own salon. But he, um, he gave me a tremendous gift by bringing me there that night. And that was the beginning of my finding myself in a room with people who I just thought were extraordinary. Mm. I had a family that was very close and very warm, but I wouldn't say that everyone was sharing in great detail and specificity right. details of their lives or right. their well, emotions. Right. I mean, actors are we're oversharers. I mean, look at us. <laughs> we're like, yes, we need exactly. to talk for an hour. Of exactly. So it's, exactly. it's definitely a different level of connection yes. with human beings when you're in a, gro- a, ro- a room yes. full of actors. Yes. And and so that was the beginning. And suddenly everything shifted. And then I decided I wanted to um, – it was summer. And I had to very quickly switch things around because I thought I, I want to do this. I wow. want to keep studying this. Again, not even – with a sense of what I would do professionally when I was done with college, but I wanted to be someplace that I could keep doing this. And yeah. um, anyway, and that was the beginning. And then I graduated from college at Fordham University at Lincoln Center. Oh, Jesuit um, school. A Jesuit school. I went, I went to Jesuit high school. That was the beginning of my meeting. You know, John Benjamin Hickey was there. He was an upperclassman, but he was there when I was there. Um, Julie White had gone to the school and came back to do shows when I was there. Matt uh, McGrath, an actor I love so much, I uh, met when I was there. Um, wow. so and, and this was all the in the theater program? This was in the theater yeah. program at Fordham. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And Is so it Denzel? Didn't Denzel go to Yes. Fordham? And he and Patricia Clarkson would come back and you, I mean, talk about when I said oh gods, God. you know, yeah, returning yeah. Uh, to walk amongst us. So they, there were all these people who had gone off to do incredible work. And as much as they were, you know, um, immediately doing incredibly well in the world of television and film, they kept coming back to do theater. And that yeah. was incredibly impactful for me early on. Anyway, so that was that. And, uh, and then as soon as I got out of college, I got backstage magazine and I tried out for a play, a mammoth play. And a guy came backstage and he was like, Alana, I said, Stephen. And his name was Stephen Hirsch. He had been my fifth grade boyfriend at summer camp and he was now an agent. So that's how I got my first agent. Wow. And it was very lucky. That's yeah, that's, that's a that's amazing that you're <laughs> able to like have that connection right away. But it's but that makes sense. I think that you know when when you're someone who is is just on the other side of the river and knows what the the scene is, even if it, you're not planning it, you're making connections. You're seeing the theater. I you know I came to New York and I just I just didn't even know how to use the subway. You know, right. it's like it's it's an amazing. Um, leg up on, on, on life in, in the business. If you just understand the city and have people around you. Um, and especially if you go to the right hairdresser, clearly. Well, you, need Bru- you need Bruno Rondinelli <laughs> to cut your hair. You need Stephen Hirsch, who is now a, a very fancy pants agent at Gersh to have gone to sleepaway camp with you in fourth yeah. grade. These are just things that for kids starting out, that's what you need to do. That's amazing. 
That is amazing. It, it, it always comes, you know, people always think that, you know, some of the connections in this business come from like big meetings or, you know, some, something happening, but it really is like uh, friendships or people that you meet through a friend or, or like connections that are a lot more intimate and smaller that last the longest or that really yeah. bring you the furthest. Don't you think? I do. And I think that it's also when you have no agenda, like I have to say, when I met Stephen Hirsch when we were in fourth grade, um, and he was Frederick in The Sound of Music, uh, I was madly in love with him. I Hmm. loved him. Uh, Not because I knew when we grew up he was going to have, you know, a position in this industry that that would be helpful, but because I loved him deeply and truly. And I think... It is only when you really, and, and, and we had remained friends and then we lost touch. And I think we were both incredibly excited to rediscover each other that night and rekindle our friendship. And, you know, it, it is really, life is, is crazy in that way that sometimes the people you meet along the way uh, are also the people who exhibit the quality of loyalty and right. not everybody has that. And I think that's really heartbreaking sometimes. I don't mean like, oh, you're now in a position to, you know, hire someone you have to if yeah. it's not the right fit. But that has been the most important thing to me in my entire life, both in my professional career and in my personal life, like yeah. loyalty. And it's a really lovely thing when you see other people have that same I don't know, that same passion to yeah. do that in their yeah, lives. Yeah, understanding. And, and, you know, when things are going well for them, they extend their hand to bring the people who've supported them up with them in any yeah. way they can. That's not always an acting job, but maybe it's introducing people or or taking them to dinner when they need yeah, it. when they need it. Dinner. Yeah. Exactly. I think so many people are so scared that there's not enough. Like when we were joking around mm. earlier about, you know, how many podcasts there are and is there a place for me. For me, it has always been about trusting that if I share information with you about something I'm auditioning for, it in no way will impact the possibility of me getting that part by me sharing it with you. Whoever is meant to get that part is going to get that part. Whoever is right for the part is going to get the part. Or frankly, neither of us are going to get it because some producer's wife is going to get it. Like there's all this stuff that we can't control anyway. I've met so many people who, who, who are not generous in that way and keep it all very close. And I don't know, I've always felt like we, uh, that's just who I am. And, and I fall deeply in love with people who share that same quality because right. there really is, there really is enough. And I don't want to give a misrepresentation of myself. I have also suffered deeply from envy and jealousy. Oh yeah. <laughs> through, yeah I mean- right. So it doesn't mean that just because I will share everything that I'm not, you know, at times yeah. incredibly like, Oh, she got it. Yeah. Okay, I mean, I guess that's good, right? Yeah, like, yeah. It's, you know, it's it's everything. It's, no, it's absolutely human. everything. It's, it's yeah. human to to have that kind of jealousy and envy. I mean, I feel like the number one reason people leave the business is because they can't figure out how to deal with jealousy. I mm-hmm. really believe that because when you see things happening for people, 
it's very hard to continue to to wait on tables or to keep pushing when uh, you see success for other people. And as I've said many times here, other people's success is not your failure, but it's very hard to live in that moment when it's a part or role that you really, really wanted or things aren't going your way. How do you get through those moments? Um, I remember really early on, I'm trying to, I don't know if I like saw it in a movie or read it in a book. I just remember the quote. I don't even remember where the quote came from. And I think it came originally from a 12-step program. Mm -hmm. And it was something like, I'm going to butcher it. And please forgive me, anyone who really knows the real quote. Don't quit before the miracle. And so basically just this idea of like, your time, your opportunity, what makes, you know, what is going to make your life yours and special is literally just around the corner. And sometimes we don't know which corner. And that's what's so frustrating. There's no map, there's no guide. But I just remember like, don't quit before the miracle really has stayed with me. And by the way, I have had to reinvent myself so many times and have had incredible highs and incredible lows equal to those highs. I started working so quickly. You know, I got out of school. I did that play. I met Stephen Hirsch. I had an agent. Coincidentally, you know, Stephen Hirsch had, had represented uh, an actor named Matthew Modine, who had just done this huge movie called Birdie a few years prior. And he was like a major movie star when I was growing up. And he had just done another job with the director, Robert Altman, which is why Robert Altman's producer called Stephen Hirsch and said, hey, Bob is going to do this new HBO series. And um, Cynthia Nixon is planning, we're, we're having her be the star, but there's a chance she won't be able to do it. So we just need to see some other young actresses in case Cynthia can't do it. And so there was no breakdown. It wasn't like 100 actresses were, were being submitted and the great fortune that Matthew Modine happened to have just done a Robert Altman project, and now Stephen Hirsch is my agent. I went to meet Robert Altman like wow. that afternoon, not really even knowing who he was. I didn't know Nashville or McCabe and Mrs. Miller or Mash. Like he just yeah. wasn't. I was too young, sure, you know, to know his work yet. Sure. Um, so I went to meet this man. Just met in an office and. Uh, Anyway, we got on swimmingly, and Cynthia could do that series, but he ended up having Gary Trudeau, the writer, the the Doonesbury cartoonist, was the writer of the series, and they wrote me in. Wow. Um, And so suddenly, I'm right out of school, and I'm in this HBO series with Cynthia Nixon, who of course I knew because she had done Hurley Burley and the real thing on Broadway (laughs) at the same time. Yeah, that's right. And she was, you know, in Little Darlings. So there I am right away, just working with all these remarkable people. And I remember Bob Altman saying to me, like, in his very, you know, maverick sort of way, like, listen, kid, it's not going to always be like this. And he was right. Like, I started my very first job was just this huge series filled with all of these remarkable remarkable talents. And my life did not go from that to the next one and the next one. I went from that back to waitressing, then mm-hmm. got a soap, then back to, you know, t- like it, it really was if it were my, like an EKG, 
Yeah. It, it, it would sometimes look like I was dead. Right. <laughs> Flatlining. Right. And yeah. then there would be these huge peaks like, oh, my God, I'm in a Broadway musical. And then I'm not. And then I'm in a uh, like crazy. So my journey has been really filled with trying to find ways to stay okay yeah. on my own path when so many people I knew, you know, I started a theater company called Naked Angels. When I first joined with that company, it was like Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick and Joe Mantello and John Robin Bates and um, Marissa Tomei and right. G- like all of these people who very quickly were plucked by Hollywood and being nominated for Oscars. And, you know, it yeah. was heady and exciting, but it was a test constantly of what you're talking about, which is um, how do I hold on to my story and yeah. my path? And I think that's where family has always been huge for me. I've always felt like I had a family who loved me and supported me and made me feel really like I had a life to be proud of, regardless of whether my name was at on a marquee or not at any given moment. And that's huge. That was huge. When did you meet your husband? I did a play at the Kennedy Center, and Dominic was cast as my co-star. And I I had never understood what love at first sight meant. I really <laughs> thought that was like a gimmick. Um, <laughs> and I was undone. I was undone because undone. That's so sweet. he is so uh, physically, for me, there was something about what he looked like that I was like, oh, if I imagined a face of the person I could love forever, like that's what it would look like. But he was so insanely talented in this play and watching him work slowly as, as the rehearsal process continued, I became more and more shy and unable to speak around him because he was so talented. Huh. Uh now I can't speak because I'm so mad at him for leaving <laughs> right. his gym clothes yeah. on, on the right. kitchen counter. But at the time, I couldn't speak because I couldn't figure out how to put a sentence together in his presence. And, um, and that is how we met. We were, we were love interests in this play. And by the end of the run, we, we were in love and I had no idea if once the run was over, if there would be any of this showmance to to continue in real life, yeah. in life mance. Um, but we have two kids and a dog, and we live in Brooklyn, and I I feel really lucky. It's amazing. And you guys, have you always lived in New York City? Yeah, we lived in L.A. a fair amount uh, before our kids started school, and we could kind of travel easily around. They were they were much more portable. We were in L.A. a fair amount because we were both doing pilot season and, and being cast in pilots. And yeah. and then we would take our money and and come home and do plays, which was our, our true love. And wow. um, we were able to do that. And then he was on Nurse Jackie for seven or eight years. And yeah. so that corresponded with our kids starting school. And so we were able to, you know, we made a decision at that point and we moved and to the coast we wanted to be on anyway so yeah. it it was um certainly where we prefer to raise kids sure uh so yeah so that's that's him and, and me. so did you i mean i always say like 
I, I guess on this podcast, when I talk to an actor who is married or, or with a, another actor, it's so fascinating to me because I'm married to a civilian, a real person. And many times there's a lot of benefits to that because he's always like, why are you obsessing about an audition? This isn't real. You know, exactly. um, it brings me back down to earth. But I think that there's a shorthand between actors and an understanding of, you know, why we would obsess about a certain thing or, or, you know, uh, you know, just knowing where they are at every moment. How has being with, uh, an actor like Dominic been, um, helpful to you and has there, are there other challenges like scheduling or just, you know, how, how do you deal with two people's professions being roller coaster rides? Well, I would say for sure scheduled, you know, Dominic, filmed a, a movie in Malta for four months or I went, you know, to do a play out of town. And yeah. so there is definitely a lot of figuring out who's going to do what, when. And I would say that there is a shorthand. That's the perfect way to describe it. There is a deep understanding of what we do, why we do it, what the frustrations are, and on the rare occasion that we still get to work together, it really is uh, the best. I would also say, though, that I am often envious of people. You know, the grass is always greener, right? Mm -hmm. There is, um, there is a. You know, we're gypsies, and we're both gypsies. And then, and so I would say the um, the insecurity, financial and emotional, yeah. um, that that comes with this career, uh, and for neither of us to have more stability you know, in general, that's yeah. hard. And I would also say that sometimes I feel like I really challenge both of us to go out in the world. And even though this is our career to do things that aren't arts related, because I want new information and new kinds of stories coming into our lives so that we're yeah. not retreading the same kinds of conversations all the time. You know, it can also feel small, as much as, you know, the, the world of entertainment is large, sometimes our world can feel really small. You know, Dominic is is volunteering today with Habitat for Humanity and, you know, painting mm -hmm. houses and, you know, we do the food bank and we just try to find organizations and places where we can grow as individuals outside of um, just worrying about scripts and what the next job is. You know, when you say your husband talks about it's not real, you know, obviously it is, it's our, mm. it is very real to right. us. It, it is our com identities. Right. <laughs> so, so yes, it's true that it is not the only important thing. And it is true that unlike other opportunities, if you don't get the one on Tuesday, there's another chance on Wednesday, right? Yeah. It's not the only audition, even though it often feels like that, but it is really important for us and for my kids too, to see that we're really looking at, at life and the world in a more global way, not just through the myopic lens of, you know, theater, film, and television. Yeah. Um, and our IMDb pages and, mm -hmm. and you know, and, and trying to um, keep it all real, like just to keep it all real, whatever yeah. that means. Well, and I, I, I imagine like when you have kids, your world just expands in a way like they do all of that for you. You know, if, mm -hmm. as long as you're engaged with them and, and, and making them a priority, which I know you are, you are completely open to a world that is well, well beyond just you and yourself and your career, because you have these two human beings that you're 
guiding through life and through growing up in Brooklyn, you know, and yeah. there's so many exciting worlds that they're bringing to your front door. Yes. And my like sadness or anxiety as I wait to hear about a job or that kick in the stomach when you find out you did, didn't get a job right. that you were really hoping for. Like I still have to get up and make sandwiches and you know, there are all these things that I have to do for yeah. them to keep them alive at the yeah. very least um, and to keep them engaged and interesting at most. Right. But but I do have to say there is nothing more fun. Like my kids have in, inherited or absorbed my unbelievable love for musical theater. And so the idea that I have created two people who will put up with and love listening to cast recordings as yeah. much as I do. There really is no greater joy. Let's talk about your cast recording of <clears throat> You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, which I, excuse me. You get I so choked see. up. I get so I choked up about your performance. <laughs> um, yes, I'm choked up. So does Ben Brantley. <laughs> Listen, it was a very special time. I talked about this on your podcast, but I was coming to New York and a friend of mine who was actually going to NYU, Greg Cata, I was staying with him. It was his freshman year. And he said, you've got to see this revival of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. The actors in it are amazing. And it is just so much fun and joyful. And it's it's the best. And I'm so glad that I got to see that show because you were all incredible. It was such a special time I think maybe it was just for me, it was special, but I really do feel like it was, you know, that, that post rent, like things were changing on Broadway. It was becoming more accessible and it was very exciting. I don't know. I was in New York and I was from Cleveland. So clearly yeah. getting to see all of you amazing performers was, was so fantastic. What was it like being a part of, of that show and that moment in time on Broadway? Okay, so remember before I was like, I would never imagine myself in a Broadway musical. Right. So I still feel that way. That was um, a very unique moment in my life because I am sure if you are anything like me, you were obsessed with Rent. And right. Anthony Rapp played Mark Cohen in Rent. And mm -hmm. then Anthony Rapp played Charlie Brown. Yeah. You're a good man, Charlie Brown. So I saw Rent. One million times. I had uh, I had done a few Broadway plays before I got You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. So I sort of had become uh, a little bit known in the Broadway community right. and had had um, found a place there. I never expected to be in a Broadway musical. Michael Mayer had seen me do a play when I had mentioned Naked Angels earlier. I had done a play called Mock and All. And there was a character in that play directed by sweet Michael Greif, who has gone on to do some things. Some things, uh, yes. <laughs> a few things. Look him up. Uh, yeah. We can pause for a moment. You guys can yes. Google Michael Greif. Um, anyway, Michael Mayer had seen me in that Michael Greif production years prior and just remembered uh, this character I had done. And in his mind, he thought, you know what? I feel like she would be great for Lucy. He was talking to Jay Binder, the casting director for You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, who happened miraculously when you think of like the angels in your life. Mm. Jay Binder's office had cast me in the three Broadway plays I had done wow. prior to Charlie Brown. It was just one of these things where he and Jack Bowden, who worked with him 
got me. And I was so lucky to have made fans who actually had jobs that were impactful in, right. in terms of getting people hired. So Jay Binder's office called and they were like, Michael Mayer has this idea. And I was like, I don't sing. That's so sweet. I cannot wait to come see that show, but I will not be participating. And they kept saying, you know what? If you can carry a tune, Michael understands that you have not. He looks at your resume and sees there are no musicals on it. You're not, right. you're not fooling anyone. Um, just come in. So I ended up working with Stephen Letvak, who has gone on to write A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. Yeah. But at the time, he was uh, a coach. So he, yeah, Stephen Letvak was my musical, coached me and went in for me to audition for You Were a Good Man, Charlie Brown. And I also want to say that um, someone named Tom Kitt, who you may also have heard (laughs) of, gave me piano lessons when I, on a lark, was pregnant with my first kid and and wanted to learn piano quickly before I became a mom. So Uh when I think about, like, just for listeners to understand, like, Stephen Letback was my accompanist and Tom yeah. Kitt taught piano lessons. Like they were doing these other things to pay the bills before they knew they were going to win 1 million Tonys. So yeah. it's just such a lesson in you just have to do what you have to do to pay the rent and then keep doing what you love and finding ways to make those opportunities for yourself. When you go to an audition and someone's playing the piano for you, they're probably going to win a Tony in 10 years. So be very, very nice to them. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And you know what? I was because I was in awe of all these people and their talent. And um, anyway, so I, Stephen came up with this idea for me to sing I Want It All, Veruca's song from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate oh, yeah. Factory, which, which I knew. So already that was great because it was a song I knew from my childhood. And perfect anyway, song choice. It was perfect. Somehow I got the part. And when I tell you that to be in a dressing room with Anthony Rapp next door warming up with his Mark Cohen songs because they happened to be in the exact right register. Oh, my um, God. It was like more than my little heart and head could bear. And then Kristen, who I didn't know, but I had seen her all roads leading back to Cynthia Nixon. Cynthia Nixon is the most generous person in the world. And she has taken me to see so many plays as her guest. And oh, that's awesome. one of the shows, we're like the Wednesday matinee ladies. Like we are the two, we love to go with all the old ladies and sit any Wednesday matinee, look around. We're probably there. I love it. And we had gone to see this show called A New Brain at Lincoln uh, Center. Yeah. And both of us, when Kristen, who had a small part, came out, I remember like squeezing Cynthia's leg going, who, who is that? Yeah. Who is this magical unicorn who looks like that and has that voice coming out of her? And so then when we're sitting around doing the first table read of Charlie Brown and she's there, I was like, oh my God, I've been waiting to meet you to tell you that I thought you were the most extraordinary thing I'd ever seen on stage. And very shortly after the whole world told her that. Yeah. (laughs) So so anyway, I was right. You Um, were. I was right. And then there's B.D. Wong and Stanley Wing Mathis and Roger Bard and, um, and when I say that they all took me along with them, I didn't know how to read music and I really didn't know what to do. And um, 
suddenly I was among these people. And, you know, they say if you're learning tennis, like play with someone who's better than you. Mm. I was I was playing musical theater yeah. with um, the most remarkable cast. And Jerry Mitchell and Michael Mayer and Andrew Lippa and everyone involved promised me that by the time the show opened, uh, I would be a seamless, integrated part of this show. And I've never worked so hard. I feel like we'd go to rehearsal and everyone would go to dinner and go home. And I don't think I slept. Like I literally had a lifetime to make up for and to catch up. And I couldn't read music. So I would just listen on my tape recorder to my songs and my harmonies. And I would practice Jerry Mitchell's choreography all night. And sometimes he would meet with me before rehearsal or after rehearsal. And, um, Kristen Chenoweth would warm me up every night because I didn't know how to warm up vocally. And, you know, so, so really I, I became someone who was in the Olympics who had kind of been on a treadmill a few times. Um, (laughs) Right. Like that's literally what it felt like, but the joy and the experience and those people, I would fill out an, organ donor card for every one of them, like anything for the rest of my life. I have no words to express, not just what it was to be in that show and to, to see, you know, the lights were designed in such a way that I couldn't really see much of the audience. But when we sang happiness at the end, the way the light was hitting them, I, you know, just seeing thousands of people sobbing, because of the simplicity and beauty of the message of that show and the way Anthony Rapp delivered it, it was, um, and then we got to the Tonys, like we're nom, like the whole thing was so heady and crazy. And that will always be like this little bubble of pure joy, um, in my life forever. Like no matter what happens, whatever happened before or after there was Charlie Brown and those people, whenever I'm talking to an actress, want to talk about the specific hurdles and, and hardships and difficulties that women have in this business. Because I have said many times, I feel like it's so hard as a man. I can't imagine how difficult it is as a woman. And we always talk about like body image and other things that are difficult. But for women, it's, you know, it's it's off the chart struggles of, of, every single day having to deal with with that how did you get through that and how do you keep a positive attitude as as an actress yeah i mean not to mention that you know talking about having kids like both yeah. of them you know that takes you out of the the market for a while right and yeah. and how to negotiate like for me nothing gives me greater pleasure than pleasure than being in a show eight times a week and yet those were seven nights a week that I wasn't home and sort of figuring out the balance of that is, is really intense. I would say for me personally, I always found myself attracted to and pursuing comedic roles because the pressures are very different when you are the ingenue or sort of being cast because of what you look like, the the beauty aspect of all of this, there is a lot more pressure to stay looking a certain way or at, you know, uh, to stay looking a certain age um, and the pressures to not 
mature. And I feel like early on, I sort of got that when you are the funny best friend, there is uh, longevity to that in a way that isn't necessarily there. I, I didn't always get to do roles that may have had as much of an arc or were as meaty in certain ways. And this maybe is more in film and television. On stage, the stage is just, I think, a place that is much more forgiving or much more comfortable with people looking like real people. Right. Um, and Broadway has always been a place where I've gotten to do these parts, whether it was Ballyhoo or a David Hurson play called Wrong Mountain. You know, people writing for the theater are traditionally delving into things in a deep way. There's the time to delve into it in a deep way. So I'm still struggling with it. I don't have an answer. I think part of why I love doing a podcast is it took away all pressure of having to look a certain way. It's just a voice and headphones and an intimate booth. And no one is worrying about how they look or, or having to be self-conscious about how they are behaving in front of other people. Right. It's it's a way for us who we're, we're in such a visual medium. It's nice to strip away all that and just have a conversation that's focused on what's being said. Yeah. And listening. I mean, obviously everyone talks about acting is reacting or really like the best actors are great at listening, which is um, such a hard thing to really understand what that means or to define. And it's something we're always, especially when you're doing a show eight times a week or a long run. Am I still listening? Am I actually, did I say this already? Was that the matinee? Like, Right? Is that today? Wait. wait. (laughs) You go on autopilot and you're like planning what you're going to have for dinner while you're tap dancing in front of an an audience. I've been there. Well, exactly. Um, So it's kind of a remarkable thing and it's a constant trying to learn how to be present. But I would say that I struggle with it every day. Part of what my, if I'm really, really honest, and I will say this to you, when I started this podcast, I was about to go get Botox. I went to a dermatologist and I found out how much it would cost. And I talked to Dominic and I was like, I'm going to inject botulism (laughs) into my face. Are you okay with that, honey? And it's going to cost a couple of thousand of dollars, maybe. I mean, they're saying it could be anywhere from like $700 to $3,000. And I was like, okay. And I literally uh, came home from that dermatologist appointment and had a free conversation with a life coach. The first conversation was free. And we had this whole conversation. And I decided at the end of that, um, that rather than use any of our money for my face, I was going to invest it into my insides. And I decided to sign up to work with this life coach uh, for the same amount of money it was going to cost to do Botox. And through those conversations, I came to the decision to actually do the podcast. That's a longer story, how that all happened. But it was literally a moment in time, like, am I going to do something to my face or am I going to kind of do something to support my creativity and my heart and my passions? Now, that's not to say that I won't revisit the Botox idea. Of course. um, Because... My I've, face I've, is is falling off. But <laughs> your face is not falling off. But listen, I've had I've had been having uh, that specific conversation with actresses 
so much more, you know, that this is something that they're talking about and discussing on whether they should or shouldn't do. And I certainly respect everyone's decision on whether they decide to do it or not. And, uh, you know, it's what's mostly important, though, is that you are working on the inside, because no matter how much you do on the outside, if you aren't having that foundation on the inside, it's not going to matter, you know? Exactly. It's, that's incredible um, that you kind of stopped and paused and did something to change your life and look at all of the creativity and and wonderful uh, conversations you've brought to people because of that. But I do think it's pretty funny that because I didn't do the Botox, I chose to do an audio experience. <laughs> <laughs> like that is not lost on me. Listen, uh, listen I'm in my right. pajamas right now. I haven't combed my hair. I look a mess. And oh. you better believe that that is one of the best parts about <laughs> being able to say like, there's no excuse. We can, you can get on uh, and ha- uh, have a conversation with a friend right now, and they don't have to feel awkward about it. And it's also it helps, you know, when you take away those parts about how you look, you can be a little more vulnerable. You know, like we can have this conversation that we're having that is very generous of you to have because many people are having this conversation, especially actors and actresses. And you don't have to feel like the camera or people staring at you. We can really just talk about what the words mean. We're definitely have the same goals and and hopes uh, for our podcasts and, and what they're trying to do. People have asked me to do podcasts or say like, oh, you should be the guest on your podcast. And I say, no, I've done the podcast that I need to do. And it's Alana Levine's. And uh, Little Known Facts is is just such a fantastic podcast. And uh, you are such a wonderful host. And I've learned so much from listening to you. And definitely go on there and listen to our episode. Um, I'm so glad yes. that you could you could take the time to be on, on Living the Dream because you certainly are. And, and I'm I just look up to you for your professional career and and your family life and all the things that you do. So thank you so much. You are so welcome. Clouds can make the wind blow. Bugs can make the grass grow. So there you go. These are little known facts that you know. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says Contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast. And on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by Pro Media. Located in Times Square, Pro Media offers both production and post production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. Pro Media Sound Vision. Find out more at promedia.nyc.